Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and all around the region, kids are hearing this again. That's right, school is back in session. So as students head back to the books, we are too, with a show all about learning, both inside and outside the classroom. We'll begin in the district's Petworth neighborhood, where earlier this week, hundreds of students flocked back to Powell Elementary School. At the front doors of the dual language institution, they were greeted in English. Good morning, good morning. And Spanish. ¿Cómo estás? Bien. By Principal Janice Dokal who was ready with a smile, a hug, and a wicker basket brimming with granola bars. Yeah, welcome back. So tall. As Principal Dokal notes, a lot of students look different this year. The student body is 85% Latino and 12% African American. And after the summer break, a number of the kids are taller or bigger or sporting different haircuts. But the students aren't the only ones who've changed since the spring. So, this is our new wing. Most smells new. I know, it has that new car smell. (laughs) Instructional coach Lisa Strepik is walking me around a brand new wing for Powell's younger students. I feel like just the outlook of everybody is elevated, being in a beautiful new space. Good teaching is just accelerated when you have a beautiful place to learn. The two-story wing is the first part of a renovation and expansion plan developed for Powell by the D.C. Department of General Services. The full plan calls for modernizing the entire school and erecting two additional buildings. The fourth and fifth graders are currently housed in portable trailers, or learning cottages as they're called, behind the school. When I started as a principal in 2009, we had around 211 students, and this year we will have around 425 which is amazing, and I think it's a sign of confidence from the community. And mind you, Principal Dokal is talking about a community whose members, just a handful of years ago, were picketing outside the school, protesting what they saw as a subpar facility. But since Dokal took over, truancy has fallen from 12% to zero, math and reading proficiency have gone up, and in a recent competition hosted by the Embassy of Spain, Powell won second place for the top bilingual school in the country. One of our main priorities is that students continue to love school and be creative and that they own their classrooms and their learning. But that ownership is difficult, she says, when students and teachers are so crunched for space. Not only are classes being held in those learning cottages, but several teachers are floating without permanent classrooms. And the cafeteria has to serve five different lunch rotations to accommodate all the students currently enrolled. We have a pretty substantial waiting list, so we do still need that expansion to be able to serve the students that we have and the ones that want to come in. That's why a group of Powell parents, known as POP, Parents Organized for the Power of Powell, is petitioning the mayor and city council for funds to complete the modernization plan. Dokal says they're crossing their fingers for a grant of $20 million. Are you confident about that? I think so. Everyone really wants to see the project finished. And so I really hope in October that there will be the dollars to back that for fiscal year 14. And some money has already been allocated for fiscal year 15. And like I said, everyone really wants to finish the project and is very positive about it. And that includes Persha Williams. She's had two sons attend Powell Elementary. Her eldest is moving on to middle school this year, and her youngest is starting third grade. The school is really doing real good. I hope the education committee and the mayor will listen to us. Please, we need more funds. Lois Baker, who has sons in kindergarten and fifth grade, also hopes the school will receive enough money to renovate more than just one wing. Because Ajani, he's in the fifth grade and he, his classes are in the cottage. So we hope it can, you know, extend over there as well as soon as possible. 
In the meantime, everyone, students and teachers alike, seems pretty geared up as school starts again, like seven-year-old Catherine. So what are you most excited about for this new school year? I'm all excited for being second grade. Catherine's classroom is in the older part of the school, and she's already energized. But for students in the new part, like those in Joel Lowenguth's class, well, the first-grade ESL teacher thinks they'll be in seventh heaven. I'm pretty sure their jaws are going to hit the floor. <laughs> if the teachers and the, all the adults and the parents and everybody in the community's jaws hit the floor, I can't imagine. The kids would probably be doing backflips. And instructional coach Lisa Strepik says she thinks Lowenguth is spot on about the kids' reaction. There's just something about their faces that you can't see on radio. <laughs> but I don't think I've seen anybody truly unhappy, mostly very excited. In the next few years, she hopes they'll be even more excited as they do their reading, writing, and arithmetic in a bigger and better facility designed truly to leave no child behind. For more on Powell Elementary School and other D.C. public school dual language education programs, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We'll head now to another D.C. school that's sporting a new look on this first week of classes, Dunbar High School, whose new state-of-the-art building features interactive whiteboards, a sparkling auditorium, and top-of-the-line science labs. Dunbar was the first public school for black students in the country, and its alumni include the Army's first black general and America's first black federal judge. But that history has faded over the years, as D.C. public schools like Dunbar have become better known for dysfunction than for achievement. Michael Martinez recently sought out some of Dunbar's best-known graduates and its current principal to explore how the school's history is likely to shape its future. When members of the Dunbar marching band filed into their new high school's ribbon-cutting this month, they strutted past rows and rows of men and women who graduated from the same school decades ago. Some of them, like the mayor who held court on the auditorium stage, are living, breathing pieces of the history the school wants to revive. DC Mayor Vincent Gray graduated in 1959 from what one can say was very much the old Dunbar High School. The school was housed in a different building back then, and it carried an academic reputation known far and wide, a reputation made by alumni like those who've appeared on U.S. postage stamps and like the renowned surgeon Charles Drew and the father of African American History Month, Carter G. Woodson. I don't know the data, but I bet you there's not 10% of other high schools in America that have even two of his graduates on postage stamps. And Dunbar, eight graduates on postage stamps. But Dunbar's current reputation more closely resembles the downtrodden building the school just moved out of, which replaced the historic Dunbar in the 70s. Principal Stephen Jackson didn't mince words about the old building while giving a tour of the new one, which sits on the same city block. Yeah, that's the old building. <laughs> it just looks scary, right? <laughs> Jackson's 96-year-old great-aunt graduated from Dunbar in the 30s. He's keenly aware that the history of the original Dunbar building and its predecessor, M Street High School, 
didn't exactly follow the school into the Dunbar 2 building on New Jersey Avenue. But actually, Dunbar's always been known for great academics. But that actually changed during the 1955, uh, after they made the decision, after the 1954 decision, to make the school a neighborhood school. You know, and uh, when they made it a neighborhood school, they didn't have the type of autonomy they had before then. The 1954 decision he's talking about is the U.S. Supreme Court decision Brown versus Board of Education, which declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional. After the ruling, Dunbar went from a magnet type of school to a neighborhood school, and the transition came with growing pains. One uh, Dunbar graduate said, you know, the, cry, the rallying cry had been integration, 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 and nobody thought about what would happen to Dunbar. That's journalist Allison Stewart speaking recently on the Kojo Namdi show. Stewart's parents attended Dunbar during segregation. The instruction was first-rate, but her father would pass multiple schools every morning just to get to the one he was allowed to attend. So there's this academically rigorous high school where students can speak two and three languages, and their teachers have PhDs and masters, but obviously this is during segregation. And I thought, what an incredible dichotomy to think, okay, so I'm this 16-year-old kid who understands Latin, but I can't go into a restaurant, or I can't buy a piece of clothing in a store, what that must have been like. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton was a student at Dunbar in 1954 when the Brown v. Board decision was announced. She said discrimination in the world of higher education was partially responsible for the bounty of Ph.D.-level instructors who taught at the Dunbar of her time, many of whom cried tears of joy when they heard the news from the Supreme Court. Our teachers consisted of, of, uh, of a very unusual group of people. Some of them uh, had PhDs, um, but at a time when African Americans uh, were not welcome in any but HBCUs, those leftover PhDs uh, often found at, at Dunbar, and all of them were, um, were very well-educated uh, people whose aspirations inspired us and who had seen uh, segregated class after segregated class come through Dunbar High School and now knew that what everyone had thought should end was ending. And there were, there were uh, teachers who cried. It was, uh, it was an extraordinary day to be sitting in any segregated classroom, but especially at Dunbar High School. The new Dunbar building attempts to bridge the school's past with its future. It includes plaques that honor notable alumni and a museum on the first floor celebrating the achievements of its graduates. Jackson, the principal, is still familiarizing himself with some of those museum exhibits, but he says it's just as significant that some of the plaques and markers have been left blank. So when students come in, uh, we told students that, do you see that empty marker on the floor? And they said yes. I said, that can be you one day. At the ribbon cutting, Vincent Gray didn't suggest there was a magic formula for recreating Dunbar's past academic glory in its new building. But he did offer inspiration from words written by the poet the school was named after. Let's remember those famous words of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Keep walking away. I'm Michael Martinez. If you want to check out Dunbar's new digs, you can watch a video on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, 
why more and more Washingtonians seem to be getting bit by the theater bug. I really feel that once I graduate from the conservatory, I will always be able to use the skills that I have been taught here. Always. That's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With the start of the school year upon us, today our show is all about learning. In just a bit, we'll hear why the sluggish economy is driving people to acting classes and how a local club is teaching people public speaking and political persuading. But first, we'll do a bit of learning on cabs, credit cards, bike lanes, and bureaucrats in our regular transportation segment from A to B. WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro is here with our monthly look at how we get around town. Hi, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. All right, so, Martin, let's start here in D.C. with the continuing dispute between the tech company Uber and the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission. Now, I understand Uber's new service, UberX, is already in trouble. Yes, you're right. Uber is a startup that allows you to use a smartphone app to hail a vehicle for hire. So you don't hail these on the street, use your smartphone. And the problems the district keeps having with Uber exemplify the challenges posed by the changing face of personal transportation here in Washington. As more innovative consumer choices come online... The more regulators believe they have to protect consumers, or as critics would say, protect the city's regulated metered taxicab fleet from unregulated competitors. So in the case of UberX, the Taxicab Commission said the hybrid midsize sedans its drivers were using were not large enough to comply with sedan regulations. But why does the size of the vehicle even matter? Well, the standard for sedan size the DCTC used, 95 cubic feet, comes from the Environmental Protection Agency. So the DCTC effectively banned UberX by ruling its hybrid vehicles are not in compliance. Here's Commission Chairman Ron Linton. There is no reason Uber can't comply with present regulations as others are doing, other than Uber's desire to use unregulated vehicles to compete against the same vehicles operating as regulated taxis. But I thought UberX used sedans, not smaller taxis. Yes, Uber says their cars are sedans, but they are really designed to compete with regular taxis by offering similar fares, and that's why regulators stepped in. Okay, okay. So I'm guessing, though, that um, that's not the end of the story? No, when it comes to Uber, the story never ends. Uh, There is more. Council member Mary Che is going to introduce legislation to resolve this fight. The legislation will, in effect, nullify the commission's rules that would say that they can't use certain kinds of vehicles. And she hopes to introduce that bill when the council reconvenes next month. So Martin, staying with cabs for just a moment, it seems one reason people like businesses such as Uber is, well, they can pay with credit cards. 
When are regular DC taxi cabs going to finally start accepting credit cards too? So there are 6,500 cabs in the District of Columbia. They were all supposed to begin accepting credit cards right now. However, more than 4,000 of them requested a one-month extension to the end of September. Now, the reasons are logistical, technical, financial, but in the end, too many cabbies were just struggling to meet this deadline, so the DCTC set up a system to give some of them an extra 30 days. Well, while we're talking about delays, let's shift to Virginia, uh, where it seems more than a few residents would like to permanently delay the Bi-County Parkway mm-hmm. project in Prince William and Loudoun. Martin, you've also done reporting, though, on the people who support the Parkway plan. Can you tell us about them? Well, the question I saw at the answer was, who is making the most important transportation decisions in the state, right? How does a plan like the Bi-County Parkway get to the point where it'll either be approved or sent away? I looked at the Commonwealth Transportation Board. No major project gets built unless the CTB, as it's called, supports it. And what kind of people do you find on the CTB? Real estate developers, bankers, financiers, not many engineers or transportation policy experts. The CTB's Northern Virginia representative is Gary Garzinski. He's a nationally known home builder who supports the Bog County Parkway. And I asked him what qualifications he has to be on the CTB. I would like to think that my appointment was a reflection of the fact that for 35 years, I've been in Northern Virginia uh, developing properties. But he's a developer, right? So I'm assuming some people say he's actually part of the problem? Well, opponents of the Bi-County Parkway say when you have developers making these decisions, you get highways built that help developers, not commuters. Well, if we look then at the timeline of this increasingly controversial road, when is it supposed to be built? There is no answer to that question now. It'll probably be up to the next governor to either push the project or let it die. All right, Martin, let's move away from highways and turn to bikeways. What's the latest with bike lanes here in D.C.? Well, I reported recently that the M Street cycle track will be built by the District Department of Transportation three months late at some point this fall. But the real controversy here involves a historic black church on M between 15th and 16th Streets, the Metropolitan Washington AME Church. It convinced DDOT to change the cycle track's design so the large congregation would not lose its parking or a car lane. Ronald Braxton is the pastor. I think some have have reduced the whole issue to parking, and the issue is larger than parking. To lose a travel lane, you cannot imagine what it would be. And it would also be detrimental to pedestrians. So DDOT's changes turned a protected cycle track into a regular bike lane that'll run right next to traffic. And how do bicycling advocates feel about that? They're not happy. Here's Martin Moulton. He's on the board of directors of the Washington Area Bicyclist Association. I think the church has the same interest that Waba does in making sure that people are safe when biking down this corridor near their church. They have their needs, but I think there's a public safety need that they have not really acknowledged at this point. The Gray administration has indicated it will not push DDOT to change the cycle track back to the original design. It's really a no-win for the mayor's office, getting involved in a fight between a vocal lobbying group and a historic church. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you so much for keeping us up to speed on what's happening in transportation around the region. Thanks, Rebecca. It's my pleasure. And if you have a transportation topic you'd like us to explore, let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. You can also follow Martin DeCaro on Twitter. What is your handle, Martin? At Martin DeCaro, D-I-C-A-R-O.
As we continue this week's learning show, we turn now to a subject that's been attracting more and more students of late, the dramatic arts. Two acting schools in D.C. have seen a big upswing in enrollment over the past few years, despite a rather sluggish economy. Lauren Landau went backstage and into the classrooms to look at this trend and the characters driving it. It's a Thursday night at the Theater Lab School of the Dramatic Arts in Northwest D.C., Students in George Grant's Intro to Acting class are preparing to rehearse lines. It's their last session of the semester. Good, so let us just uh, re-establish what we're doing. What do you want him to do? I want him to help me be normal. Uh, that's, super, that's the super objective. <laughs> that was Felicia Gurley, a Baltimore resident. She says she's not an actress, but wanted to give acting classes a try. Well, I wanted to start acting for confidence sake. I thought it would just be a cool thing to do, and it would just help me to say the things that I may be afraid to say. Theater Lab co-founders and executive directors Deb Gottesman and Buzz Morrow say that many of their students are like Felicia. They're looking to build real-life skills, not necessarily pursue a career in acting. They want to get more comfortable talking in front of a group. They want to break out of their cubicle and do something creative. So we have lawyers and teachers and nurses and all kinds of folks who come in here wanting to expand their sense of self. Since 2008, despite the economic downturn, Theater Lab has seen a 58% increase in enrollment. I think that what happened is that people started to realize that this is a perfect time to build skills, that if they were in between jobs. This was a way to build some skills that would help them get another job. Theater Lab offers a class called Anyone Can Act, and that's part of the school's central philosophy. Buzz says that he and Deb don't buy into the so-called talent myth that acting is a skill people are either born with or without. You know, if you were taking a pottery class, would you say, well, I don't really think that I should be doing this. I mean, you would assume that you could be taught the principles of how to make that pot, and it's very much the same thing with acting. Deb estimates that about 75% of theater lab students come because they want to augment their life skills in some way. And even though their job is to teach people how to act, Buzz says it doesn't bother him at all that most of his students don't want to be actors. I love the fact that most of them are not trying to be professional actors because it, it allows us to open them up to something that they really hadn't considered before. He says more than half of their students leave wanting to work as actors or be involved in community theater. Theater Lab ignited that spark in one student, Montgomery County resident Taylor Payne, who says she was a shy, homeschooled teenager when her mother convinced her to audition for Theater Lab's production of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. She's like, come on, it doesn't hurt to do anything. So I was like, okay. So I went and I gave the worst audition of my life. But, (laughs) you know, I was there on time, I was prompt, and I said, you know, I just want to give this a try. Just let me try. And so I ended up getting into the ensemble. And she never looked back. Since then, I haven't really gone two or three months without being in a show. I just always wanted to be in it, and I always wanted to learn more and have another character. Okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? Taylor is now 21 and has begun her studies at the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts, where she is currently in her third semester. Like Theater Lab, the conservatory has also seen a spike in enrollment, particularly among young people. Nan Ficka is the school's director. We've had sort of a rush of of the younger set um, in the last two or three years, it's, it's been unusual. It's kind of dropping our numbers down in terms of the average age in the classroom. She thinks it's because the current economic climate is pushing parents to consider alternatives to a traditional four-year liberal arts education. 
And at $4,000 a semester, the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts costs a whole lot less than a four-year college education. Mom and dad are saying, huh, you know, I can, we can stay local, we can do the drama school, you know, there's always time to get the bachelor's degree. It's not like it has to happen right now. Nan says the conservatory teaches students through the Konstantin Stanislavski system, which relies on objective tactic. In other words, students such as Taylor Payne have to determine what their character wants and how they're going to get it. That's what Stanislavski did, was taking us from a very presentational type of acting that we had before realism to something that's supposed to look like something was happening in the moment for real on stage. Taylor says the conservatory has taught her a reliable method, and it starts with the script. Now I can come into the first rehearsal off book with all these choices already made and choices that I can back up because I have this method. She says that she didn't choose acting. It chose her. And even though it's a difficult career path, she's happy every day for that struggle. I really feel that once I graduate from the conservatory, I will always be able to use the skills that I have been taught here. Always. I'm Lauren Landau. For more about the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts and the Theater Lab, including information on upcoming performances and how you can sign up for classes, visit our website, metroconnection.org. From acting, we turn to another kind of performance, one that inspires fear and dread in many a person's heart. Public speaking. Now, you may have heard of Toastmasters International, the nearly 90-year-old nonprofit that teaches everything from presenting a sales pitch to giving the perfect wedding toast. Well, here in D.C., one Capitol Hill Toastmasters club is combining the art of public speaking with the art of political persuasion. Eva Harder has the story. Casey had seven... It's almost 7 on a Monday night in the Russell Senate office building, and Joanna, the evaluator for the evening, is going through the number of ums the speakers used during their speeches. It wasn't an um, it was like this, er, uh, something. I'm not sure what it was, but it was was really uh, barely noticeable. This is a meeting of the Liberty Toastmasters Club, and this sort of constructive criticism is par for the course at Toastmasters meetings, which began nearly a century ago. Liberty Toastmasters President Aaron Fitzgerald says the group welcomes people from all different belief systems, but most members do have one thing in common. They're libertarians. Liberty Toastmasters is different because we are a politically focused group. We are a liberty-minded group. But just like any other club, Liberty Toastmasters always starts out like this. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Evaluators, who judge the quality of the meeting and the two prepared speeches, are asked to play critic. Would anybody um, volunteer to be a general evaluator to evaluate the overall meeting and introduce the evaluators for the speeches? A grammarian, who corrects each speaker's grammar at the end of the meeting, speaks up. You said pretty good a couple of times. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty well. This is all standard procedure for a Toastmasters get-together. But here, members have a platform to advocate for libertarian efforts and libertarian ideals. The security of the home, the security of a livelihood, the security of social insurance. That's Romina Boccia. She works at a D.C. think tank that focuses on federal spending, 
and part of her job is to articulate why reforms are needed. She's giving a seven-minute-long speech decrying dependence on Social Security. Now, many people abhor calling Social Security an entitlement. I paid into it with my hard-earned money. It's not an entitlement. I hear all the time. But Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system. This means that today's workers are paying the benefits of today's retirees. Romina believes giving a good speech can be empowering. And she says the libertarian movement in particular needs effective public speakers. In terms of the uh, liberty-oriented free market movement, I think to have more articulate speakers will help make the case for free market and economic freedom policies. And if more people are able to talk about these ideas uh, more persuasively, hopefully we can convince more people to rely more on communities and on their own than to rely on the government. She's not alone. Dan Whitfield, one of the founders of Liberty Toastmasters, believes libertarians are at a disadvantage in the political sphere. Those who believe in free markets and free minds, uh, we have a difficult, difficult task in front of us because those who believe in statism, they can, they, can look, they can dangle government jobs in front of people's eyes and they can point to factories and say that needs a bailout, otherwise those people will lose their jobs. Uh, we don't have that. So ours is a much more difficult job conveying the ideas of freedom to people, uh, particularly in an economy as sour as this. And so this gives you the practice that you would need. And what better place to get that practice than our nation's halls of power? Whitfield thinks the symbolism of their meeting place and Russell Senate Building 385 might be worth noting. Liberty is in short supply in uh, Washington these days, so maybe this is our little outpost. We're just uh, sticking a tiny flag in the ground to say that uh, we who believe in liberty, we few have not been forgotten. At the end of the meeting, a few other things in the evening speeches haven't been forgotten or forgiven. You mentioned somebody earning 100,000 pounds, but you're in America now, (laughs) where we are in U.S. dollars. So I think your audience can better relate to you if you use the currency that they're most familiar with. But overall, the evaluators end with constructive criticism. So thank you, Dan, again for a very um, inspiring speech. A firm handshake and a round of applause. I'm Eva Harder. You can see what a Toastmasters meeting looks like or find a club in your area on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, give a kid a fish, you feed her for a day. But teach a kid to fish? Do you have any words of wisdom about fishing that you want to tell people? Be patient. And if you're not patient, then what? You go quit. You go quit. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're grabbing our backpacks and hitting the books with a show about learning. Now, it probably goes without saying that much of the learning we do happens outside the classroom. And in just a few minutes, we'll hear about a program that's schooling kids on the environment by teaching them to fish on the Anacostia River. 
But first, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom this week, a lot of people, including President Barack Obama, have been reflecting on what our nation has learned and how it has changed since that historic event. Men and women without rank or wealth or title or fame would liberate us all in ways that our children now take for granted. Here in D.C., you'll find many people who actually took part in the march. Emily Berman brings us the stories of two of these marchers and their memories of that day. On the morning of August 28, 1963, 30-year-old Wilbur Wright got up, quickly ate a piece of toast, and headed from his home in Shepherd Park to Union Station. The train from New York was arriving at 7.30. I went inside and just walked around and looked for him. I'd never met him before. But I, I, he was easy to pick out. He's a tall, distinguished, and distinctive-looking man. Wright was involved in the D.C. chapter of Americans for Democratic Action and had volunteered to escort Asa Philip Randolph around the city. A. Philip Randolph was the president of the Sleeping Car Porters Union. It was the only labor organization of African Americans. He had started organizing them, I think, as early as the 1920s. They eventually won the right to bargain and and were were very successful. Randolph had originally planned to organize a march on Washington back in 1941. He had never given up on the idea. So when there was this recrudescence of, of interest in civil rights and labor rights, he again proposed that. And Martin Luther King picked up on it. And so, after more than 20 years in the works, on the day that the march would actually happen, Randolph made sure to arrive in D.C. a few hours early. And I escorted him to my car, uh, and he, recognizing he had arrived early, intentionally, but he had all this spare time on his hands, and he raised the question with me, now, what are we going to do with all this time? (laughs) So I volunteered the possibility we could go to my house and we could just relax. Randolph accepted the offer, and so they headed uptown to Wilbur Wright's house. When we came back home, my wife uh, greeted us at the door, and she was surprised to see one of the speakers. I think she asked if he were hungry. (laughs) And uh, I think he had a a brief snack, and he went upstairs (laughs) and took a nap on the bed in my daughter's room. While Randolph rested, Washingtonians all over the city were making their way downtown, including 17-year-old Irma Sally and her sister, Devon. My mother told us, you two stick together. So we just started walking down 14th Street. We went 14th and Park Road. We walked all the way downtown to 14th and Constitution Avenue. They wore capris and T-shirts and carried a brown bag lunch. It was clear, Sally recalls, who was from Washington by how formally they dressed in the August heat. The women... They came in their church attire. They came dressed in suits, and they had on stockings. Some of them had on high heels. But as the afternoon wore on, more speakers, and by the time I saw these women taking off their stockings and putting their feet in the reflecting pool by the Lake Memorial, trying to cool off as much as possible. We saw so many people. We were surrounded by people. It's like, wall-to-wall people, and they just kept coming, and they just kept coming. I mean, I was just 17, but I was thinking, 
boy, this is really wonderful that white people feel they want to help us along this, you know, this struggle. It was really the most remarkable crowd of people I have ever seen. We're going to march. We're going to walk together. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing together. We're going to stay together. Wilbur Wright made his way toward the Lincoln Memorial after dropping Asa Philip Randolph off at a meeting with the other march leaders. Wright was too far away to see the speakers' faces, but the amplification was perfect, and the crowd was quiet. I had thought there would be just a series of speeches and it was going to be a rather militant program that uh, the speakers were going to take a, a stance of demands on the administration and on the Congress. I have a dream that one day this nation... I was, was more than astonished when, when Dr. King began speaking about, I have a dream, and the crowd responded to that. And I thought, well... This isn't, <laughs> this isn't what I had in mind. I have a demand. I have a, a program. <laughs> I have expectations, not a dream. That one day on the red hills of Georgia. It wasn't what he was expecting to hear, Wright says. But looking back 50 years later, it did work. Dr. King's speech presented a, a, not an angry black man that, that everyone feared, but a, a man of, of, of philosophy and, and hope and... And, uh, and dreams. I was younger and uh, more inclined to, to press harder, but the wisdom and the experience of the leadership prevailed. And in a sense, I suppose, the, the dream that Martin Luther King was talking about, a preview of it was there before him that day. And now, at 80 years old, Wright concedes, Dr. King sure knew what he was doing. I'm Emily Berman. now to the banks of the Anacostia River. That's where you'll find local kids learning for free a rather old school activity, the art of fishing. But these students aren't just trying to hook the big one. As Lauren Ober tells us, they're gaining an appreciation for the river and its crucial role in the region's ecology. If you want to catch a fish in the Anacostia River, or really anywhere, there's one thing you need to have. Patience. 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 Yep. Patience. But that's not something many kids have much of. That's why the Anacostia Youth Fishing Program, run by a local nonprofit, the Earth Conservation Corps, is so remarkable. If the kids want to hook a fish, they have to be patient. There's no way around that. They expect to catch a fish immediately. I tell them, you know, it may be 5, 10, an hour, or you may not catch a fish at all. That's Jesse Moore, a professional bass angler from Columbia, Maryland, who helps out with the program. But you have to have patience. And then that patience that you, you get out here or that's instilled in you out here, take it over into your everyday life. Moore looks more like a college running back than a fisherman, which may be why the kids connect so well with him. Plus, he knows what he's talking about. He's been fishing since he was their age and has been a pro for the past five years. His passion for fishing is infectious. You know, this is opening the door up to new activities and, and hopefully they can take this and pass it on to their friends in the neighborhood or, you know, take it into their adulthood and pass it on to their children. So that's the whole objective of being out here tonight. It definitely beats being inside playing a video game or hanging out in the neighborhood. This is the first year for the pilot program. 
Just about every Friday night this summer, kids from the D.C. region have gathered along the banks of the Anacostia River at Diamond Teague Park, just a stone's throw from Nationals Park. Mike Bolander, the Anacostia Riverkeeper, says there are few opportunities for city kids to access fishing. And that makes a program like this critical. Us being able to facilitate that gives kids a chance to build awareness, and then you know, that awareness is going to lead to behavior change. These kids are going to grow up and care about the river. Most of the 20-odd kids who are out on this Friday night trying to hook a catfish don't have much experience with the river, even though many of them live in neighborhoods that border it. This program is trying to change that. You don't protect something until you love it, and you don't love something until you know stuff about it. You don't know something unless you, you see it and experience it. That's Trey Sherrard, a biologist who works with Mike Bolander. He sees the fishing program as a way to transform the river from an abstract concept to a real living thing. So every line baited, every fish caught, every piece of trash spotted floating on the river's surface becomes a teachable moment. Tonight, a couple of giddy middle school girls from Suitland, Maryland, are getting help setting up their fishing poles. Sherard takes a piece of bait and spears it with a hook. The bait looks like a marble-sized piece of putty and smells like the most unappetizing sausage ever. There you go, ladies. So reel it until it just barely becomes tight. And once the line is straight, so you can give it a little more. Perfect, right there. So now you can watch the tip, or you can keep a finger here. Okay. And you'll feel a sort of a bounce. You'll either see it or feel it. So you don't need to watch the line. The tip itself will kind of bob up and down real quick. Thank you. Of course. The girls follow Sherard's advice, but the fish just aren't biting today. It's windy and the tide is strong. Still, Destiny Bolden and her crew seem to be having a good time. What I like about fishing is that we out the house and we get to do something for the environment. This program is catch and release, so anything that lands on a hook goes back into the river. Biologist Trey Sherard says people shouldn't eat fish caught in the Anacostia, though lots of folks do. The river has several toxic hotspots filled with chemicals that can have serious developmental effects on children and pregnant women. On this particular evening, 11-year-old Catherine Hilliard of Southeast D.C. is having no luck at all nabbing a fish. But all this waiting around for a bite isn't the worst thing ever. She's goofing with Kate Harder, a freckle-faced six-year-old who lives near the U Street corridor northwest. They're giggling and getting occasional pep talks from Jesse Moore, the pro. And whether they realize it or not, they're learning. Do you have any words of wisdom about fishing that you want to tell people? Be patient. And if you're not patient, then what? You's going to quit. You're going to quit. And you will never catch a fish if you quit. I'm Lauren Ober. But for real, when are you going to catch a fish? I ate like an hour. You mean have to wait for an hour till you catch a fish? I think. <laughs> We'll wrap things up today with Bookend, our monthly look at D.C.'s literary scene. This time around, we'll meet a debut novelist who's been winning some serious critical acclaim, A.X. Ahmad, 
Ahmad's new thriller is called The Caretaker. It tells the story of a former Indian Army Special Forces captain trying to carve out a new life on Martha's Vineyard, where, it turns out, his elite military training suddenly comes in very handy. Jonathan Wilson met up with Ahmad at one of his favorite writing spots, the Courtyard at the National Portrait Gallery. There, they talked about what it's like to be an author of thrillers and to be a teacher of writing at the Writers' Center in Bethesda, Maryland. So tell me, first of all, why you chose this place. It seems like you like to kind of get out in the city and, and work different places. I discovered quickly in my career that sitting alone and making up stuff can be a pretty lonely business. And I actually find that I, I find it easier to be creative and to let my wa- mind wander when there's a certain level of distraction. And the portrait gallery is really, really wonderful. Um, I mean, this courtyard's incredible. You get sunlight all year round. And, you know, when I want to take a break, I can walk around and see some incredible works of art, you know. So I take a break and I see an Edward Hopper, and that kind of, like, inspires me to stay in the game. Anybody who reads the back flap of your book will see your bio. You were raised in India, got your higher education done here in the States. Um, Says you spent time as an international architect. So take me through how you get from international architect to writer and writing teacher. I was an architect for 15 years. I practiced in the Boston area over in, over in Singapore and some work in India as well. But I was always writing during that time. I'd wake up at like 5 o'clock in the morning and write for a couple of hours. And I was lucky enough to be part of a cohort of writers who were meeting in an, in an evening class at a place called Grub Street in Boston. My wife was basically like, this is something you really want to do. Um, you should give it a shot. So we decided we'd give it a two-year window and I would write full-time. And in fact, uh, now that I'm writing, I'm writing full-time. I think that being an architect for so many years has really served me well, simply because um, architecture is a long-term creative process and it's not a linear process. You just don't like do one thing and move on to the next step. You don't have like a little sketch on the back of an envelope and then you have a building, you know, a few years later. It's very iterative. You have to go back and redo and redesign and you start with a concept and you deepen it and you make it real and you put in the plumbing and the bathrooms and stuff like that. So that gave me a kind of a certain toughness and a certain resilience that I'm not sure that I would have had in my 20s. So that's that's my transition from architect to writer in a nutshell. Your first novel, a lot of people would call it a thriller. Were you always writing in that mode? Do you have that sensibility about you? Or was this was it an accident, having this to be a, a thriller, kind of a book with some action and some intrigue? I moved here when I was 17, and so I've been here for almost 30 years in the States. And um, really the question is, what can I write about? What is my subject matter? And if I were to write about India at this point, I'd be writing about an India of the 1970s, something very nostalgic. I mean, I go back to India and I can hardly recognize it. And yet I didn't feel that any American subject matter was mine. And when I started writing my current novel, The Caretaker, Um, I was really looking for a world that I could claim of my own. And really writing in genre, writing a thriller slash mystery, has really opened up a lot of material for me because I'm not limited by the immigrant stories of assimilation or nostalgic stuff about India. Um, And in fact, the Caretaker trilogy, um, the first book was set in an immigrant community in Martha's Vineyard. The second one is set among the cab driver, the Indian and Pakistani cab driver community in New York. And I'm just starting one about a a Sikh farming community that historically existed in California. So it's really opened up all kinds of material for me. In terms of teaching, 
Talk about what that does for you, because not every writer likes to teach. What does it do for you? And I also wonder what it's like in a classroom where you have, let's say, 10 different writers with very different styles, goals, genres. Uh, Is that difficult for you? I really enjoy um, teaching simply because uh, I enjoy approaching writing as a craft and so it doesn't really matter and in fact it's, it's exciting when you have um, different people in your class writing different things I have people in my classes uh, one woman was writing uh, a book set in, in medieval China um, another woman was writing a western romance and underlying all these different genres was the fact that writing is a craft so it's been exciting for me because the teaching allows me to kind of formulate my thoughts about what works and what doesn't. And because um, I'm teaching, um, uh, I even hesitate to use, you know, to say that I'm teaching these folks. It's like we're in this, we're in this together, um, but they will soon catch up. These are, these are all folks who are adults who have had, you know, really interesting and demanding careers, and they've traveled, and they're thoughtful and intelligent, and they bring so much to the table. And, and so I, I actually leave my teaching you know, both exhausted because we have a, a two-and-a-half-hour class and I have to read, you know, up to 200 pages of manuscript for that class, but also invigorated, and I've, I've learned a lot from my students as well. That was writer A.X. Ahmad speaking with Metro Connection's Jonathan Wilson. You can hear more of their conversation and learn more about the Writer's Center on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Michael Martinez, and Lauren Landau, along with reporters Lauren Ober and Eva Harder. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show all about fame. We'll check out journalist Jim Lehrer's new one-man play about the legendary Alexander Graham Bell. We'll meet the history buff stitching a replica of the iconic American flag that once flew over Baltimore's Fort McHenry. And we'll visit a Maryland town whose claim to fame comes from being the capital of the United States for one day. People were so excited to see the president of the United States. So they bunched up and they put their faces close to the window. You know, the president's here. Oh, you want to get a glimpse of him passing by. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.